The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, we're headed to Italy today, and let's start with Rome, and in particular, with the neighborhood known as Trastevere. Maybe you've been there, or maybe you just want to go. You should. It's a gorgeous little neighborhood south of the more famous tourist attraction, the Vatican and St. Peter's. But it's on that side of the Tiber River, the west side. The name literally means across the river, across the Tiber. This is an ancient neighborhood which, through luck and circumstance, has retained a lot of its original character. It dates back to the Etruscans, when it was more of a village for sailors and craftspeople. But when the Emperor Augustus expanded Rome, he included Trastevere. There were 14 districts in Rome, and Trastevere was number XIV. This kept its winding, narrow streets. For a long time, carriages couldn't pass through which kept the neighborhood from being too modernized. And its little churches and other buildings aren't part of any grand vista. They pop up like surprises, more like hideaways than examples of grandeur. If the Piazza Venezia, Mussolini's favorite, is an anniversary cake on display for the entire party to see and admire, Trastevere is the box of chocolates, plain cardboard with treats inside. There's a building in Trastevere near the river, almost the first building you see when you cross one of the bridges. It looks like an office building, and it has a few flags hanging over the main entrance. It's the color of a million other Roman buildings, and it has the same windows with the same shutters and a few window air conditioning units. You'd pass by it easily on your way to the interior of Trastevere, where you maybe plan to eat at one of the little restaurants and gaze out at the piazza where children will be running around a fountain. What you might miss if you pass too quickly is a place where popes have come to visit. They're there to wash the feet of the prisoners. This is not just an office building. Inside is the carcere di Regina Celli, the prison of the Queen of Heaven. It's a very Italian name, the prison of the Queen of Heaven. And in fact, this building looks more like a convent than a prison, perhaps because that's exactly what it was when it was built. But like so many things in Rome, it has this blend of history as historical forces washed over Rome in successive generations. It was started by a pope in 1642 who died before it was finished, but it was in operation when Napoleon's forces arrived in the early 19th century. They seized it as part of their suppression of religion. But after the war, they returned the convent to the nuns, who lived in it for another 50 years or so. They decided to move on later that century, and the Kingdom of Italy needed a prison. So the building was confiscated and repurposed. A prison. A prison for women in those early years, and also a police academy. And then, in the 20th century, the fascists arrived and it became a place to detain political prisoners. 
1943, a man called Leonida John Turco was brought to the prison. He had been working in the offices of a newspaper, L'Italia Libera, or Free Italy, as we would say. It was an anti-fascist newspaper calling for the liberation of Italy, which was starting to happen as the war turned in favor of the Allies. At this moment, Mussolini had fallen, though the fascists were still in charge. John Turco was identified as the editor of the newspaper, and he was arrested and incarcerated. It was his second time at the prison. He had been there before, years earlier, when the fascist regime had begun. He was in fact not Leonida John Turco, a pseudonym he was using to try to stay undercover, but a 34-year-old intellectual named Leone Ginsberg. He came from Russia originally, from Odessa on the Black Sea. His family was in business, and when war broke out, he was left in Italy with a tutor who taught him French and Italian and introduced him to music and theater, and he had a great love for literature. Gogol, Tolstoy, Pushkin, Dostoevsky, and also Balzac and Stendhal and Maupassant. He did not feel Russian but European, and when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out, he was in Torino, or Turin, to stay. He now became a translator, Pushkin's Queen of Spades, Turgenev's Home of the Gentry, and several other works. I take a physical pleasure in reading, he said, and when he translated Anna Karenina, he said, quote, It is magnificent, and I shudder to think that it will be me who corrupts it. End quote. He also developed a taste for politics. It was hard to avoid in those early years of his, especially in Turin. At 15, he attended high school with future literary and political stars, Giulio Ainaudi, the publisher, and Cesare Pavese, who became a famous writer. Even among these bright minds, he stood out. He spoke carefully, the others noticed. Not slow, but unhurried. He spoke as if he were reading lines from a book. By the time he was in his early 20s, fascism had banned all other political parties. While he was writing his thesis on Maupassant and starting a career as a literature teacher, politics was becoming impossible to ignore. He became an Italian citizen and joined the anti-fascist resistance. He was not a fan of Bolshevism, but fascism was pressing upon him and upon freedom and free speech and freedom of thought. He wanted to help people. He wanted poor people to escape poverty. Meanwhile, professors across the Kingdom of Italy were required to make a public pledge of loyalty to fascism. He refused and lost his job. And then he was exiled to southern Italy, to the region known as the Abruzzi. When Mussolini fell, he returned to Rome and restarted his work at the newspaper, trying to stop fascism from spreading, believing in freedom, risking his life for his cause. But although Mussolini was gone, the fascists were still in charge, and they arrested him and brought him to this prison in Trastevere. This was not good for him. There was a German section here, and Leonie Ginsburg was Jewish. Ginsburg, Ginsburg. The name rang through the prison as the guards recognized him and brought him to the German section. I will not leave here alive, Leone said over and over. And he was right. While he was there, in that prison in Trastevere, he was tortured and killed. That was in February of 1944. He was survived by his three children, 
and his wife, now a widow, a woman, herself a great lover of literature, a translator too, the first Italian translator of Proust, which came a few years later. She was also a writer. It was, she said, her vocation, and she had known it since she was a girl. In the years and decades after her husband's death, she went on to become one of 20th century Italy's great writers. Those who read her today will recognize her somewhere in between Hemingway, whom she admired, and Elena Ferrante, one of her natural successors. It's a stretch of storytelling territory she shares with Catherine Mansfield and Maupassant and Chekhov. Her name was Natalia Ginsberg. We'll have her story today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm excited today and a little nervous. I think I told you once about my great Italian teachers, Rebecca and Ellen. Actually, they've both been on the show. (laughs) By the way, which also made me nervous when they were here, it's funny that I don't get nervous around famous people or famous writers. I've met several of them, met several billionaires. I've met several famous writers too, and they do nothing for me. If anything, I'm calm. I feel calmer with them than with normal human beings. With these writers, I know who they are and what they can do, and I just don't have any anxiety whatsoever. I'm more nervous to go to the post office and talk to a stranger than I am to be introduced to a famous writer. And yet, when I intersect with Rebecca and Ellen, I'm 18 again. I mean, it's funny in a way. Those two have been so nice to me. There's no reason to be nervous. They're like my big sisters in a way. If there's anyone in the world who are less of a threat to me outside of my own family... It's those two. But maybe that's why I'm anxious. I don't want to let them down. As you get older, maybe you find this to be true. Anxiety is less about what will happen to you and more about what you yourself might do to yourself. If the world throws something at you, you deal with it and continue, and challenges and obstacles are there to be endured or overcome. But if you yourself cause the problem, it's a lot harder to accept. So I have this feeling... When it comes to a show about someone like Natalia Ginsburg, because I know she's an important writer to a lot of people, and to my Italian mentors in particular, and I want to make sure I do justice to the subject. And yet, because I'm so limited and lazy and poor, (laughs) intellectually impoverished, I know I'll probably screw it up anyway. You see what it's like to be Jack Wilson? What a miserable wretch. This fellow is, ah, well, let's begin. Or you know what? Let's wait one more second. Yes, I'm going to mess this up like I mess up everything. But the good thing is Natalia Ginsburg, you know, how should I put this? People have said very nice things about the podcast, and that's wonderful. I truly appreciate it, all of you listeners who have been joining me for this journey. But part of me also thinks, well, come on, I'm talking about Keats and Borges, and Rimbaud, and the Brownings, and the Brontes. It's hard to screw this up completely. Natalia Ginsburg is in this category, too. Her life is so fascinating, and her writing is so good, so sneaky good at times, that it's it's hard to screw up an episode like this, even with Jack Wilson doing his best to stumble and sweat and stammer his way through. I have confidence 
that Ginsburg herself will come through, rising like a phoenix from the Jack Wilson ashes. Okay, let's begin. I wanted to start with a little story that keeps sticking in my head, not in my craw, but in my mind. My craw is just fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking. My gullet has seen better days, and my gizzard... Don't get me started on my gizzard, but my craw's pretty good at the moment. The story is one of me sitting at my computer, probably staring at some horrible news like my monthly bank account statement while my children are playing with the neighbor in the backyard. My boys are five and seven, and the neighbor is eight. And I look up from my desk, and the neighbor, this little boy, is standing in the doorway of my office. Hello, I say glancing out the window to make sure the boys are in the backyard. Everything's okay. And I ask him, is there something you need? And he says, um, is a tree a living thing? And I say, yes, it is. I'm a little curious because he's a smart young fellow. I'm a little surprised he didn't know that. And he says, um, can you tell Jack Wilson Jr. Jr.? That's not his real name. That's his name for the podcast. He says, can you tell Jack Wilson Jr. Jr. to stop hitting the tree? I looked outside, and indeed, my five-year-old was hitting the tree with a broom. I stormed out of the house, and as I approached, I heard the neighbor say, it's a living thing. Your dad said so. And my little boy screamed back, it doesn't move. I think about this all the time. It's a living thing. It doesn't move. The child's mind looking for evidence. What makes a thing a living thing? Movement, he thought. But of course, we know a tree is a living thing. My neighbor was very wise and very sensitive. He hated to see the tree being hit with the broom. And sometimes when I'm on a walk or sitting in my car, as I like to do these days, just drop off the kids at something... They're a lot older now. I can drop them off and go nowhere. Just open the windows to the car and let the breeze flow through and sit and do nothing until their practice or activity is over. And sometimes I stare at the trees, not the plucky little ones with the stark trunks, but the great majestic trees, trees taller than a house, green now at this time of year with thick full leaves that sway and shimmer and shiver in the wind. Trees are living things, and how we treat them says something about us, doesn't it? They are majestic creatures, huge, sturdy, generous, wanting little, turning to the sun, leaning, soaking up nutrients from the soil, sipping water, mostly just standing in place, contributing to the universe, not bothering anyone or anything, existing. I love trees. I love it when they grow. I hate it when they're chopped down. A diseased tree feels awful. And yet you can walk right by those trees, as most people do every day, not noticing, not bothering, not caring one way or the other. You can even think they're artificial or man-made or just part of the landscape, like a pole or a shed or a tower. My five-year-old was confused, but his response, not the beating, but just his confusion about whether it's living, is not that different from how most adults think of trees, really. 
We overlook them. That's how we act in life toward them most of the time. Living thing, yes, but also something in the way, a nuisance, or most commonly, just there. Not something to notice. I think of that when I think of Rome. And it's why I started the podcast today with that. Look at the Queen of Heaven prison. Just like trees are not just part of the landscape, cities are not just ornamental, not just examples of architecture, not just background. They are also living things. I think of tourists going to Epcot Center and saying, this is just like Venice, or this is just like Ireland. This is just like a real Irish pub. But how many people go to Venice and say, this is just like Disney World? Quite a few, probably. And maybe they even think, except it's dirtier. It's like Disney World, but it's not as nice. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because it's real. When you close your eyes and think of London, maybe you see Big Ben with Peter Pan and Wendy flying toward it, or maybe you think of Harry Potter at the train station. Maybe for Rome, you see the Colosseum. Maybe for Paris, it's the Eiffel Tower and a man with a beret and a baguette on a bicycle. Maybe for New York, it's skyscrapers and the Statue of Liberty. And then you get to New York. More than once, I've been with someone who's seeing New York for the first time, and they say, there's so much garbage on the streets. What happened? What's going on? <laughs> Something wrong? No, it's just garbage day. That will get picked up. It has to go somewhere. A lot of people live in this building. The garbage comes out to the sidewalk. There are all these people here. They create garbage. Or the visitor will say, does New York always smell like urine? My friend and his family took a trip to New York City when he was in high school, all the way from New Orleans. None of them had ever been to New York before. They emerged from the train station, and my friend's father looked up and said, so this is Times Square. And a bird shat on his face. <laughs> right then, right there at that moment, welcome to New York. But that's what kids say about New York. Did you see the Empire State Building? You might ask a kid, did you go to Central Park? And a little kid, let's say a three or four-year-old, might say, we saw pigeons. Lots of pigeons. This is what it's easy to forget sometimes. Yes, Italy is beautiful, gorgeous. And yes, it's like a museum. And yes, Rome is just an incredible place, almost as overwhelming to me as Venice was to dear old Marcel. But... Rome is not just a backdrop. It's not just scenery. People live and love and die there, just as they do in Beijing and Mumbai and Moscow and Seattle. They enjoy life there. They survive there. They worship like those nuns in the convent. And because humans are humans, there is pain and suffering too. Sewers with excrement, hospitals for the sick, orphanages for the parentless, rehab centers, police stations, and prisons. There is evil if you believe in evil. Sometimes the history of Rome becomes so layered and so complicated that it can overwhelm the present. The futurists felt this. They didn't want to live in a museum. They didn't want to look backward. They wanted Italy to be modern with fast cars and powerful factories and the early 20th century version of tech. A lot of those futurists became fascists and the spirit lived on. Mussolini said, we are not going to let Roman ruins stop us. We're not here to pay homage to history. We're here to use history for our purposes. 
We're going to bend the present ourselves, shape it, put our stamp on it, even if we have to trample the past in the process, and even if we have to trample our principles and undermine our values and stifle and suppress and censor. And they did. And Leona Ginsburg paid the price. He was in prison a couple of times, and he was exiled, and eventually he was killed. But our story today is the one of his young wife, Natalia, seven years younger than Leone. She was born in Sicily and moved to Turin as well. She was married at age 22. Three years later, she followed her husband into exile in the Abruzzi, where her husband rode on a kitchen table, setting aside literature for politics, mostly. His times demanded it. And by the time she was 28, she was a widow. She was courageous. We talk a lot about courage. We use that word a lot, but we don't dissect it for what it can mean. We throw the word around. And when it comes to political courage, we often use it for someone who speaks up, who says things we don't want to hear. But that's not always courage. It doesn't always require courage, or at least it doesn't require much. Resisting your friends and supporters, that requires more. Pushing for change that will upset entrenched interests. That requires more. Risking something of value to you. Sacrificing something. That's courageous. Being honest can be courageous, even when it has nothing to do with politics. Telling your story. Let's say it's the story of your drug addiction and your recovery. That can be very courageous. You're putting yourself out there. But it's not necessarily an act of physical courage. There aren't people out there who will want to kill you for telling your story. But taking a political stand, that can lead to death threats and actual murder and assassination. Or if the circumstances are such that your statements are against the powerful, your own government, you might be risking imprisonment or torture or death. Now, it's one thing to be on one political side agitating for change or advocating for one group over another, and to face a brutal crackdown. Some people have politics in their blood, and courage comes with the territory. What's awful about awful regimes like the fascists, like totalitarian regimes, pervasive in their awfulness, is when they reach out and require non-political actors to take a stand, to resist, when it requires someone who just wants to be left alone to make a difficult choice. Leone Ginsburg had politics in his blood. He was there for the fight. He was a soldier in that army. He became a martyr, and that's horrible. What happened to him? When it came time to resist, to sign the paper of loyalty to the fascists, he said, no way, not me. Literature professor. Only a few were strong enough to do it. He was one of them. Eventually, he paid the price. There was another professor in Turin who wrestled with the choice. He was older, almost 60. He wasn't a political scientist or a writer. He was an anatomist and histologist, the word we use for people who study biological tissue under microscopes. He was a great teacher. Three of his students went on to win the Nobel Prize. And he said, how can I sign this oath of allegiance to the fascist regime? They are against truth. They are against learning. It's everything I stand for. And the response was, if you don't sign, you will lose your post. You won't be able to teach anymore. But teaching was everything to him. Science and research were his life. If you take that away, 
then what? This is an agonizing choice, the kind of brutal decision that totalitarian regimes force upon us. It's one thing to say, I'll give up my freedom if necessary. That's for the Leone Ginsburgs of the world. I should note that Leone Ginsburg was not yet married and didn't have kids when he uh, refused to sign. In his case, I'm not sure it would have mattered. He was courageous. He might have signed anyway. But it's another thing to say, I'll resist, but not if I will lose my vacation house or my mansion or my cushy job as a CEO. Well, that's not much courage at all, is it? But if someone says, your life is teaching, but we won't let you teach, or you can sign this paper and we'll let you. It doesn't really mean anything, does it? To you, you're going to teach the way you always did, and if you don't sign, you can't. That's a difficult trade-off. We have competing values now, an abstract commitment to the truth versus specific loyalty to one's profession and the advancement of science. It's a diabolical choice that they presented to this histologist. But history often imposes choices like this on us. Your country or your friends? Your children's health or your right to speak out? That man, that scientist, that born teacher agonized over the decision, resisted as long as he could, and ultimately decided to sign. His name was Giuseppe Levi, and you might have guessed that he's part of the story too. One of the family members watching him wrestle with this decision was his daughter, who was 15 at the time. Her name was Natalia, and a few years later she would get married and become Natalia Ginsberg. Let's take a quick break and come back with Natalia's life, what she learned from these courageous actors caught up in a whirlwind, her father and her husband, how she exhibited courage herself, and how politics and political courage fed into her writing, sometimes in visible ways, sometimes in ways not so visible. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. 
These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor Meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Natalia Ginsberg was born in Palermo in 1916. She moved at age three to Turin, where she spent most of her childhood. Her father was Jewish. Her mother was Catholic. They raised Natalia and her siblings to be secular atheists. Later in life, Natalia identified as Jewish, and after that she became sympathetic to Catholicism. And her religion and her religious beliefs, I'm going to say, is a bigger subject than one we have time for today. We're also not going to spend much time on her own late career as an elected politician, other than to say that when she was in her mid-60s, she was elected to the Italian parliament as an independent, where she focused on the causes you would expect helping families, helping women, standing up for freedom, caring about people. She fought to lower the price of bread. She fought for Palestinian children. She fought for reform of adoption laws and for legal assistance for victims of sexual violence. She was a humanitarian on the side of helping people who needed help. There are the virtues that she exhibited throughout her life, through her novels and her short stories and her essays. But let's return to her youth She was in an academic family, a bunch of intellectuals around, her father chief among them in the early years, but it was a household with lots of visitors and a lot of intellectual currents swirling around. This was the period between two world wars, and a lot of politics was coming into the forefront. Communism was a viable option, an attractive one, especially during the Depression. Europe and America wrestled with all these ideas, but also with fascism. This was the backdrop for Natalia's world. And there was also literature, the modernist period in full swing. She was the first to translate Proust into Italian, and she was herself a storyteller. My vocation is to write, she wrote in 1949 when she was 33, and I have known this for a long time. I hope I won't be misunderstood. She said, I know nothing about the value of the things I am able to write. I know that writing is my vocation. When I sit down to write, I feel extraordinarily at ease, and I move in an element which, it seems to me, I know extraordinarily well. I use tools that are familiar to me, and they fit snugly in my hands. If I do something else, If I study a foreign language or try to learn history or geography or shorthand, or if I try and speak in public or take up knitting or go on a journey, I suffer and constantly ask myself how others do these things. It always seems to me that there must be some correct way of doing these things which others know about and I don't. And it seems to me that I am deaf and blind and I feel a sort of sickness in the pit of my stomach. But when I write... 
I never imagined that there is perhaps a better way of writing which other writers follow. I am not interested in what other writers do. But here I had better make it plain that I can only write stories. If I try to write a critical essay or an article that has been commissioned for a newspaper, I don't do it very well. I have to search laboriously, as it were, outside myself, for what I am writing now. I can do it a little better than I can learn a foreign language or speak in public, but only a little better, and I always feel that I am cheating the reader with words that I have borrowed or filched from various places. I suffer and feel that I am in exile. But when I write stories, I am like someone who is in her own country, walking along streets that she has known since she was a child, between walls and trees that are hers. My vocation is to write stories, invented things, or things which I can remember from my own life, but in any case, stories. Things that are concerned only with memory and imagination and have nothing to do with erudition. This is my vocation, and I shall work at it till I die. I am very happy with my vocation, and I would not change it for anything in the world. I realized that it was my vocation a long time ago. Between the ages of five and ten, I was still unsure, and sometimes I imagined that I would be a painter, sometimes that I would ride out on horseback and conquer countries, sometimes that I would invent new machines that would be very important. But I have known since I was ten, and I worked as hard as I could. End quote. And right she did. A dozen or so novels and short story collections, essays she published in newspapers, and which were later collected in marvelous collections. And she wrote plays. Her theater writing brought her into the world of film, and she herself acted in a film or two, playing Mary of Bethany in Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Pasolini would be another great figure for us to cover. I wish we had more time. He was a lover of literature. He was a poet. He was from Bologna, my second city. He was murdered in mysterious circumstances. For today, maybe we can just say that he was one of the neorealist filmmakers, with stories of the poor and working-class struggles, humanist films, all different, the neorealists, and all with their own particular flavor, but filmmakers like Visconti and De Sica and Rossellini are in there. You can put some of Fellini in there, too, and some of Pasolini as well. And you can put Natalia Ginsburg in, the literary equivalent of the neorealists, both as an editor. For years, she worked for the Ainaudi Publishing House, publishing authors like Cesare Pavese and Italo Calvino and Alberto Moravia and Elsa Morante, and turning down Primo Levi, interestingly enough, maybe because it was too painful for her. I've seen it speculated. But really, she's a neorealist, in my mind anyway, because of her writing. This is where that Hemingway love comes in. I'm going to talk about that later. I'm also going to read from her work, not from her fiction, but from an essay that I think is going to capture what I mean by neorealism. And then I'm going to wrap up the story of her father and her husband and her own courage, which is what we can draw from today. Let's do that after a quick break. When one reads Natalia Ginsburg, one is struck by Ginsburg's narrative voice. It's funny, it's humane, it's descriptive, it's assertive, but also unassuming. It's plain spoken, 
but deeply intelligent. At times, it's profound. Let me correct that. There's a couple ways of looking at that. At times, it reaches for profundity, and other times, it finds profundity in the mundane. And it was influenced by Hemingway. There's a kind of narrative style that we might associate with the 19th century, and that more or less disappears with the modernists. It's the grand, omniscient style practiced by most novelists and exhibited, maybe perfected, by Tolstoy. It's the voice of God, sitting in heaven, gazing down at the world, able to look at the big picture or able to zero in on the small, the voice of George Eliot and Tolstoy and Trollope and Thackeray and even someone like E.M. Forster, who was given this kind of a voice as if inheriting an heirloom. Hemingway, and lots of others too, but he's the extreme example. Hemingway doesn't sound like the voice of God. He sounds like a human being, seeing the world and rebuilding it for the reader, sentence by sentence, detail by detail. How does he deal with something like World War I? He describes the leaves on the trees and the feel of the gravel road underfoot, and the smell of the gunpowder and the way the men climbed over the walls, brick by brick, detail by detail, building the world. Write the truest sentence you know, he used to tell himself. That's not someone sitting down to plan out a grand scheme, a big architecture, the entire world, the way Count Leo Tolstoy did. That's someone closing his or her eyes and trying to remember and trying to capture and convey not invent, capture, and convey. When Ginsburg and Calvino met, they discussed Hemingway. We'd have given anything to have written hills like white elephants. We'd have given ten years of our lives to have written it, they later said. In 1946, Calvino and Ginsburg met Hemingway. And later, Hemingway read Ginsburg's books and told her they were glorious. Calvino took his own path. But I think Ginsburg is squarely in this line of literature, the writers who focus on the details of the world, who count on those truths to get to what they're trying to get at. Natalia Ginsburg believes in things. Calvino wrote in a review, quote, those scarce items that can be ripped from the vacuum of the universe, the mustache, some buttons. She believes in her feelings, in her actions, whether kind or desperate. End quote. None of this would work if we didn't like Natalia Ginsburg's voice, but it does work. And so we're willing to read these detailed accounts dotted with humor as she catalogs the simple gestures, the small things, the small moments, which sometimes burst into flowers or fireworks of genuine insight. She's willing to set something like a divorce or a hungry child alongside a historical movement like fascism. I'm going to give you a taste of this so you can hear for yourself what I mean. This is from her essay, Winter in the Abruzzi. But her fiction is not all that different. The selection of detail and the stitching together is what gives the narrative its pull and its power. Okay, just to give you some historical context for this essay, this was written in Rome in the autumn of 1944. We are a few months after her husband has been killed which happened in February of that year. Natalia had followed him to Rome because she had courage, just as she had gone with him to the Abruzzi to live in exile, 
because she was unafraid then too. When she went to Rome, she had to disguise herself and her children. We're war victims without papers, they said. We're lost. I'm a widow. And within months, that was true. So now she's looking back. She's looking back at the period, the several years where she lived in exile with her children, or three children and her husband, and she had come from the northern industrial city of Torino. Her sister had married Olivetti, the guy who made the typewriters. That was the kind of upper-class world that was around them, although her family was more intellectual-slash-academic. Not rich, but not peasants either. More comfortable with the Olivetti's than the peasants of the world. Then, Natalia and her husband and their children went to the Abruzzi in southern Italy, and suddenly she was in a world of peasants, living among them, living like them, and learning what that was like. Here's the essay. Listen especially to how she uses details to build to the final two paragraphs. It's like she's painstakingly putting together an airplane, piece by piece. Here's the propeller. This is the wing. This is an instrument dial. Here's a knob for the handle, for the lever on the panel, and so on. Puts together the airplane, and in the last two paragraphs, shows us what the airplane can do. She builds, and then we soar. This is winter in the Abruzzi. There are only two seasons in the Abruzzi, summer and winter. The spring is snowy and windy like the winter, and the autumn is hot and clear like the summer. Summer starts in June and ends in November. The long days of sunshine on the low, parched hills, the yellow dust in the streets, and the baby's dysentery come to an end, and winter begins. People stop living in the streets. The barefoot children disappear from the church steps. In the region I am talking about, almost all the men disappeared after the last crops were brought in. They went for work to Terni, Sulmona, or Rome. Many bricklayers came from that area, and some of the houses were elegantly built. They were like small villas with terraces and little columns, and when you entered them you would be astonished to find large dark kitchens with hams hanging from the ceilings and vast, dirty, empty rooms. In the kitchen, a fire would be burning, and there were various kinds of fire. There were great fires of oak logs, fires of branches and leaves, fires of twigs picked up one by one in the street. It was easier to tell the rich from the poor by looking at the fires they burnt than by looking at the houses or at the people themselves or at their clothes and shoes, which were all more or less the same. When I first arrived in that countryside, all the faces looked the same to me. All the women, rich and poor, young and old, resembled one another. Almost all of them had toothless mouths, exhaustion and a wretched diet, the unremitting overwork of childbirth and breastfeeding, mean that women lose their teeth there when they are thirty. But then, gradually, I began to distinguish Vincenzina from Secondina, Annunziata from Adolorata, and I began to go into their houses and warm myself at their various fires. When the first snows began to fall, a quiet sadness took hold of us. We were in exile. Our city was a long way off, and so were books, friends, the various desultory events of a real existence. 
We lit our green stove with its long chimney that went through the ceiling. We gathered together in the room with the stove. There we cooked and ate. My husband rode at the big oval table. The children covered the floor with toys. There was an eagle painted on the ceiling of the room, and I used to look at the eagle and think that was exile. Exile was the eagle, the murmur of the green stove, the vast, silent countryside, and the motionless snow. At five o'clock, the bell of the church of Santa Maria would ring, and the women with their black shawls and red faces went to benediction. Every evening, my husband and I went for a walk. Every evening, we walked arm in arm, sinking our feet into the snow. The houses that ran alongside the street were lived in by people we knew and liked, and they all used to come to the door to greet us. Sometimes one would ask, When will you go back to your own house? My husband answered, When the war is over. And when will this war be over? You know everything, and you're a professor. When will it be over? They called my husband the professor, because they could not pronounce his name, and they came from a long way off to ask his advice on the most diverse things, the best season for having teeth out, the subsidies which the town hall gave, and the different taxes and duties. In winter, when an old person died of pneumonia, the bell of Santa Maria sounded the death knell, and Domenico Orecchia, the joiner, made the coffin. A woman went mad, and they took her to the lunatic asylum at Colomaggio, and this was the talk of the countryside for a while. She was a young, clean woman, the cleanest in the whole district. They said it was excessive cleanliness that had done it to her. Girl twins were born to Giugetto di Calcedonio, who already had boy twins, and there was a row at the town hall, because the authorities did not want to give the family any help, as they had quite a bit of land and an immense kitchen garden. A neighbor spat in the eye of Rosa, the schooled caretaker, and she went about with her eye bandaged, because she intended to pay back the insult. The eye is a delicate thing, and spit is salty she explained, and this was talked about for a while until there was nothing else to say about it. Every day, homesickness grew in us. Sometimes it was even pleasant, like being in gentle, slightly intoxicating company. Letters used to arrive from our city with news of marriages and deaths from which we were excluded. Sometimes our homesickness was sharp and bitter and turned into hatred. Then we hated Domenico Orecchia, Giugetto di Calcedonio, Annunziatina, the bells of Santa Maria. But it was a hatred which we kept hidden, because we knew it was unjust, and our house was always full of people who came to ask for favors and to offer them. Sometimes the dressmaker made a special kind of dumpling for us. She would wrap a cloth round her waist and beat the eggs, and send Crocetta around the countryside to see if she could borrow a really big saucepan. Her red face was absorbed in her work, and her eyes shone with a proud determination. She would have burnt the house down to make her dumplings come out a success. Her clothes and hair became white with flour, and then she would place the dumplings with great care on the oval table, where my husband wrote. Crocetta was our serving woman. In fact, she was not a woman because she was only fourteen years old. It was the dressmaker who had found her. The dressmaker divided the world into two groups, those who comb their hair and those who do not comb their hair. 
It was necessary to be on the lookout against those who do not comb their hair, because, naturally, they have lice. Crochetta combed her hair, and so she came to work for us and tell our children long stories about death and cemeteries. Once upon a time there was a little boy whose mother died. His father chose another wife, and this stepmother didn't love the little boy. So she killed him when his father was out in the fields, and she boiled him in a stew. His father came home for supper, but after he had finished eating, the bones that were left on the plate started to sing. Mummy with an angry frown popped me in the cooking pot. When I was done and piping hot, greedy daddy gulped me down. Then the father killed his wife with a seethe, and he hung her from a nail in front of the door. Sometimes I find myself murmuring the words of the song in the story, and then the whole country is in front of me again, together with the particular atmosphere of its seasons, its yellow gusting wind, and the sound of its bells. Every morning I went out with my children, and there was a general amazed disapproval that I should expose them to the cold and the snow. What sin have the poor creatures committed? People said, This isn't the time for walking, dear. Go back home. I went for long walks in the white, deserted countryside, and the few people I met looked at the children with pity. What sin have they committed? they said to me. There, if a baby is born in winter, they do not take it out of the room until the summer comes. At midday, my husband used to catch me up with the post, and we went back to the house together. I talked to the children about our city. They had been very small when we left and had no memories of it at all. I told them that there the houses had many stories, that there were so many houses and so many streets and so many big fine shops. But here there is Giro's the children said. Jiro's shop was exactly opposite our house. Jiro used to stand in the doorway like an old owl, gazing at the street with his round, indifferent eyes. He sold a bit of everything, groceries and candles, postcards, shoes and oranges. When the stock arrived and Jiro unloaded the crates, boys ran to eat the rotten oranges that he threw away. At Christmas, nougat, liqueurs, and sweets also arrived, but he never gave the slightest discount on his prices. How mean you are, Jiro, the women said to him, and he answered, People who aren't mean get eaten by dogs. At Christmas, the men returned from Terni, Sulmona, and Rome, stayed for a few days, and set off again after they had slaughtered the pigs. For a few days, people ate nothing but sfrizzoli, incredible sausages that made you drink the whole time, and then the squeal of the new piglets would fill the street. In February, the air was soft and damp. Gray, swollen clouds traveled across the sky. One year during the thaw, the gutters broke. Then water began to pour into the house, and the rooms became a veritable quagmire. But it was like this throughout the whole area. Not one house remained dry. The women emptied buckets out of their windows and swept the water out of their front doors. There were people who went to bed with an open umbrella. Domenico Orecchia said that it was a punishment for some sin. This lasted for a week. Then, at last, every trace of snow disappeared from the roofs, and Aristide mended the gutters. A restlessness awoke in us as winter drew to its end. Perhaps someone would come to find us. Perhaps something would finally happen. Our exile had to have an end, too. 
The roads which separated us from the world seemed shorter. The post arrived more often. All our chilblains gradually got better. There's a kind of uniform monotony in the fate of man. Our lives unfold according to ancient, unchangeable laws, according to an invariable and ancient rhythm. Our dreams are never realized, and as soon as we see them betrayed, we realize that the intensest joys of our life have nothing to do with reality. No sooner do we see them betrayed than we are consumed with regret for the time when they glowed within us. And in this succession of hopes and regrets, our life slips by. My husband died in Rome, in the prison of Reginacelli, a few months after we left the Abruzzi. Faced with the horror of his solitary death, and faced with the anguish which preceded his death, I ask myself if this happened to us, to us who bought oranges at Giro's and went for walks in the snow. At that time, I believed in a simple and happy future, rich with hopes that were fulfilled, with experiences and plans that were shared. But that was the best time of my life, and only now that it has gone for me forever, only now do I realize it. It's a beautiful essay. It tells me what I want to know about their marriage and this period of their lives and her husband and her and human beings who have lived in that way. Now, remember her father, the father I told you about, the one, the scientist who went ahead and signed that loyalty oath to the fascist regime. Natalia was not critical of him later in life. She properly put the criticism where it belonged, on the monsters who had forced him into that choice. But one of the pieces of that story that her poor father complained about and which she thought about was that he had started out resisting, and it was a lack of courage of everyone else that forced him to make that choice as well. If there had been 50 of us holding out, they couldn't have done it, he used to say. But there weren't 50. There were something like five or fewer. That's the tough thing for all of us. We can't all help everyone and everything in every direction all at once. My heart is breaking for the people of India right now, and it's breaking for so many different people in so many different places around the world. It would be courageous for me to throw everything aside and do everything I can to help. All of them, all at once. But of course I can't. Nobody could. So we do as much as we can. But there are times when that moment arrives, when it strikes directly at you, at your occupation or your vocation. This is the moment that calls for courage. Leone faced that with extreme courage. And so did Natalia, and so did many others. And then she wrote about it, in novels and in short stories and in essays. For decades, she wrote about it. She was writing about it even when she was not writing about it. There's a great line. I wish I could remember who put me onto this. There's a great line about Ginsburg that quotes the Bertolt Brecht statement. And they said, in the days of darkness, this is what people asked Bertolt Brecht, the playwright, German playwright. They said, in the days of darkness, will there be singing? And he said, there will be singing about the darkness. That's how Ginsberg works, too. We hear the details. We see the worlds being built. We laugh at the small things 
and we're there with her as she tells us what more or less amounts to gossip. Calvino called it that, I think, but he didn't mean it as a criticism. That's the funny thing about Calvino. I was going through those ideas. <laughs> I was going through those ideas about narrative voices before, how Tolstoy and company were the voice of God and Hemingway wasn't. And I thought, you know what? Hemingway is Adam. And Ginsburg, who came after Hemingway and didn't suffer from Hemingway's weaknesses in quite the same way, is like Eve. That's what it is, seeing a world as if it's new, naming it. But unlike clunky old Adam, also thirsting for knowledge and seeing evil for what it is and allowing oneself to absorb all of that. It's why I said Natalia is post-Hemingway, but she lives in territory occupied by some pre-Hemingway writers, too, Chekhov and Maupassant, among a few others. But as I put together this kind of keen insight, aha, Ginsburg is like Eve, the first woman in the world. I read Calvino's essay about her, which of course begins, Natalia Ginsburg is the last woman left on earth. And I think, there I go, I've done it again. I'm exactly 100% wrong. <laughs> My big idea, a total flop. I could not be wronger than a heck of a job, Jack Wilson. My poor Italian teachers, Rebecca and Ellen, must be shaking their heads. Where, oh, where did we go wrong? But hey, maybe I can twist this around a little bit. Maybe I can say that Calvino and I might have been getting at something similar. I mean, the first woman on the earth and the last woman on the earth have a few things in common, right? There's only one of them. First of all, they're alone. Scrambling a bit here. My kindly teachers are probably smiling and agreeing to give me a C plus instead of a C. Let's turn again to Ginsburg and one more beautiful stretch of prose. As I said, she's writing about the war even when she's not writing about it. She's writing about the Holocaust, too, and fascism and her husband and all the things she's engaged with deeply in her time and also motherhood and being a writer and literature, and Italy. It's all in there. This is the news I want. I want to know what she thinks and how she sees and what it means. Her recommendations. Listen to this quote from her essay, The Little Virtues. Quote, As far as the education of children is concerned, I think they should be taught not the little virtues, but the great ones. Not thrift, but generosity, and an indifference to money. Not caution, but courage, and a contempt for danger. Nor shrewdness, but frankness, and a love of truth. Not tact, but love for one's neighbor, and self-denial. Not a desire for success, but a desire to be and to know. That's the first paragraph of an essay called The Little Virtues. I've never felt closer to her than when I read and consider this paragraph. The little virtues, so many of them get in our way. They hold us back. They pin us down. They make us limit ourselves. They sound good, thrifty, be thrifty, save for a rainy day, and so on. But they can also kill life. So much of life is deciding to be the person who keeps his job rather than the one who risks it. But at what cost? What kind of a life is that? 
Here's someone, Natalia Ginsburg, who risked it, who risked her life, who saw her husband risk his and lose it, saw her father fail to risk it and stay alive. And what does she say? She says, take the risk, value it, value the choice, be as honest as you can. Don't live in the Disneyland version of Rome. Live in the living, breathing city, for better or worse. Her father talked himself into going along, said it's for the students, it's for teaching, I have a higher calling, I can't let them take that away from me. And that's how most of us are. And Ginsburg, as I said, was not critical of her father for making that choice. But if 50 others had been as courageous as her father initially had been, he wouldn't have needed to make that choice. Their cowardice prevented him from being courageous. And Ginsburg is saying, when the moment comes for you, if you're a scientist asked to bend the science to a politician's will, or if you're a bureaucrat asked to carry out atrocities, or if you're a novelist or a playwright or a poet or a publisher forced to choose between the truth and what the people in power want the truth to be, Don't look to the little virtues to get you out of your jam. Sign up for the great virtues and let them pour through you like the sun pouring through a clear and cloudless sky. Live as large as you can. Live for freedom and honesty and compassion and generosity. Be great-souled. Live for pain, too, if you must, and be ready for that. Be honest with yourself about who you are and what you stand for, and what you're doing. Don't be cramped and crowded and tiny, and then pleased with yourself when you've chosen to be the smallest version of who you are and who you can be. Be big. Be large. Be giant. The moral and intellectual giant you can be. That's what Natalia Ginsburg means to me, and she said it with every word she wrote. She expressed it with every breath she took. Be big. Be giant. Live. Mm, That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope my Italian teachers are pleased. Once I turned in an essay in Italian, I had worked so hard on it. I wanted so badly to do well. And I got the comment back, and at the top it said, Ottimo, which means great in Italian, but of course I was too stupid to know that. I fell for a false cognate, and I thought, well, I don't know what this word means, but otto means eight. So maybe Ottimo means eighth. And I thought, oh my god, they ranked the essays, and I finished eighth. And what the... There's only like ten kids in the class. How did I finish eighth to these losers? I tried my hardest and cocked it all up once again. As I told you people, as I keep telling you, it is not easy being Jack Wilson. But I will keep trying, which means some Henry James is around the corner. Let's see how I can bungle the beast in the jungle. Maybe some rhymes would do it. I guess I'm well on my way there. We also have our two-a-weeks Two episodes a week coming up in June. Twice as much joy (laughs) or pain to endure for those of you who hate listen. Twice as much love and sunshine for those of you who don't. Who don't hate, that is, but who listen, you know what I mean. Those of you who are not mean, off the rails again. I'm Jack Wilson. Well, 
Do we have to wrap things up already? Go read Natalia Ginsburg. You will not regret it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.